But we're going to uh, turn for just a few moments to Matthew's Gospel and to chapter 1 and to hear uh, something of this hope, this truth. Because uh, at this time of year, we, we see the story in so many different ways, don't we? Uh, we see it performed by children, we see it on TV, we see it on Christmas cards. But, but so far this Advent, we've been lighting up the candles of hope, and faith and peace. And wherever hope and faith and peace stand together, it lights up another gift, joy. So today we light the candle of joy. Our journey to Christmas takes a step closer. The light grows even brighter. The flame spreads even further. Through the Holy Spirit. When you think about because it, Joseph joy is such a little word, law, but it makes a huge difference in our lives. It's like these candles. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Should we pray together for just a moment? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this season. We thank you this morning for this day, for this moment, for being able to celebrate together, people of all ages, something of the wonder, the joy, the excitement, that you, God, have come to be with us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us today to know something more about what that means for us, about what kind of a way this opens, about what kind of a path uh, this means, what kind of a, a future, a freedom, a faith that we can have because you have come. So as we listen closely to these words, we pray that you, the Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, might breathe on them afresh and help us to know what it is that you want to say to each and every one of us today. So Lord, into our lives right now, into our minds, our hearts, our lives, wherever we are, Lord, would you speak right now, we pray. And we pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name, and we ask it for his glory. Amen. So away in... A manger, familiar words, but of course we've got a bit of a, a play on words. And we've been thinking uh, two Sundays ago uh, how Jesus' coming gave him a way to see us. Now, God is watching us, but not from a distance, but through a baby's eyes. And in a manger, for crying out loud, in the lowliest place, the most humble place imaginable, he's got a way to see you. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be you. Then last Sunday, Andy was sharing with us some great teaching on the fact that it doesn't just open Jesus' eyes, it opens our eyes. That Jesus came to show us that we have this unique thing with Jesus. Uh, we've got pictures of God and understanding of God and words about God in the Old Testament. But what we have in Jesus is so different 
that John is able to say that nobody's seen God, but Jesus, the one and only, has made him known. So it's a way for him to see us. It's a way for us to see him. And I want to close this sort of mini-series this morning by thinking about that this is a way to save us, a way to save us. Does anybody here know the meaning of their name? I mean, we've all got a name, I presume. But does anybody know what their name means? Just feel free to call it out if you do. Beloved. Beloved. Every time you say Amy, you say beloved. <laughs> I thought that would get an R. That's not going to get an R this morning. You're all kind of cuted out this morning, aren't you? Okay. Anybody else know what their name means? I know that, Daniel. But do you know what your name means? <laughs> God is my judge, yeah, and there's a really specific name in the Bible why Daniel was given that name, yeah, fantastic. Anybody else know? So, sorry, say that again. Neely White. Neely White. Gerwin. Neely White. Wow, I don't know what to do with that. I probably, should, <laughs> probably shouldn't do anything with that, but thank you for sharing. That's fantastic. Great. Somebody else said? Bitter, yeah, yeah. So every time we talk to Mary, we're talking to somebody bitter. And that's <laughs> shocking, absolutely shocking. And do you know what the name Jonathan means? God's gift. I'm not making it up. <laughs> I'm not looking it up. It's what, it's what it means. If there's ever any evidence that God has a tremendous sense of humor, uh, it's, it's right there. Names in the scriptures are, are highly significant. If they're given ahead of time, they, they give a hint uh, as to God's design for a person, their, their purpose in life. And there's something that happens in Joseph. Joseph has heard that Mary, of course, is pregnant. They're pledged to be married together. Now, engagement in the first century in biblical times is very different to engagement today. Once you got engaged, the clock was ticking till your wedding day. It was literally a year later, uh, and preparations were underway. It was a big public thing to be engaged together. And so the, the, the fact that Mary was pregnant and Joseph knew, I'm not the father, was disastrous to him. And he thinks about what on earth he wants to do about that. And the text contains something of the struggle, doesn't it? He, at one time, he, he's faithful to the law, but on the other hand, he, he loves this woman. And despite what has happened, he does not want to expose her to public disgrace and, and worse. And so he has in mind to deal with it within the family, to try and deal with it as quietly and as sort of respectfully as, as possible. I don't think we think about this often enough, but what a guy. He was a good man, such a good man. And he's considered this and his heart is settled on it. And then into his dreams comes an angel. And these words change everything for Joseph. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God, God is in this, Joseph. She will give birth and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means God to the rescue. God saves. And those two things change everything for Joseph. What's really interesting is that you can line up what the angel tells him to do with exactly what Matthew then says he does. The angel says, take Mary home as your wife. And so Joseph takes Mary home as his wife. And you are to give him the name Joseph, the big thing in Jewish culture that the dad names the child. Joseph's involved in this now. He has a part to play. You are to give him the name Jesus. And then we read, and he gave him the name 
Jesus. You can line them up. They are word for word exactly the same, what, what Joseph does. So he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. I want to think for a moment with us today about what that means. Uh, in our day, we, we kind of take the issue of sin a bit lightly, don't we? We, we, we use it in all kinds of ways. Uh, I think the word sin can often mean a sort of mistake that people make. It can mean cheating on a diet if you follow one of those plans. So what, what is it about sin that we need to be saved from? See, if I only think about sin as just a mistake I make or some wrongdoing that I do, then I might need to be forgiven because of that. But do I need to be saved from sin? That's the question we're going to be diving into this morning. In what way does Jesus' coming save us from our sins? This word comes so early, doesn't it, in Jesus' life, before he's even born. And then towards the end of Jesus' life, the, the night that he's arrested, He's having a meal with friends. And Jesus wants them to know that everything that is about to happen is not just happening to him. This is something that he has come to do. It's something that he has designed, something that he is going to walk into. He's told them a number of times, nobody's going to take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. And as if he just wants to emphasize this one last time while they're sharing this meal together, he takes some bread. He says, look. This is my body, and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes a cup and says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus wants to make it as clear as he can that I'm about to give my body and my blood. And of course, he's, he's borrowing language of, of sacrifice, uh, of temple, where a body of an animal would be sacrificed and the blood would be offered to God uh, as a way of paying the price for sin, as a way of atoning, uh, a way of making up. It was a difficult thing to do, a costly thing to do, a way of showing God how serious sin is uh, in our lives. And Jesus is there around this table saying, I'm about to become your sacrifice. For the forgive, poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So how does that affect you and me today? What does that actually mean 2,000 years later, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where Jesus lived? What does that actually mean? I came across this story uh, a while back on a website called Journey Online, which is where a whole bunch of people have shared their story of coming to faith. And there's a woman on there called Adrian. She says that she grew up in a Christian home, and she grew up to, to go to church. She knew the Jesus story, the Jesus way, the Jesus language very, very well. Uh, and at one level, she said, I, I probably thought I was a Christian. I thought I did believe it. And then she goes off to university, and she falls into a group of friends. And this group of friends are heavily into drinking. And so she joins them. They party hard, they party long. And part of that culture was a sense of promiscuity. And she says in those early years of university, she gave herself away to so many people, thinking that that would make her popular, thinking that would give her a reputation of being wanted and, and liked and available. But she said what it left her with was a feeling of dirtiness, of shame. She writes really passionately of being crippled 
by shame. That there were certain things, places she wouldn't go because what if she saw that person and what if they told those people? And her life, rather than getting bigger and bigger, got, got smaller and smaller. When she was home from university, she said she, she would go to church, but she'd sit right at the back just in case anybody somehow knew, in case anybody could see behind her eyes somehow anything was going to be said so she could slip out really quickly. And she sought for ages a way to deal with shame. All of us have a different relationship with shame. Shame's an interesting thing. It's slightly different from guilt. Guilt is the actual condition of failing to meet the mark, of, of actually having sinned. And all of us are guilty. And there's some things that we're guilty of that we feel very ashamed about. Shame can accompany guilt. There's other things that we're guilty of that we feel no shame about at all. But she lived with this season of, of just this crushing sense of shame. One day she sat with a youth worker in that church and just opened her heart, just poured out what had been happening, expecting to be kind of exposed and expelled from that community. And as they sat there and prayed, she said she felt this washing away. It's a bizarre thing, isn't it, sin? It promises so much, delivers so little, and then once we have sinned, stands apart from us and points at us and makes us feel guilty. In the scriptures, that person is described as the enemy of our souls, Satan, a name which literally means accuser. That's so often what he does. He tempts us and he tricks us. And then he stands apart and mocks us for having fallen to his tricks, to his lies. But there is a way out of shame. The Jesus who came to be born among us who entered into this world into a situation of great shame. For Mary and Joseph not to get married, the, the stigma that would rest not just on them as a couple, but them as a whole family. The, the father would have thought to have failed both Mary and Joseph in this society. The shame that would have rested on them. And yet the hope that within that there is a God who is with us and who understands us. When another writer in the New Testament, again, is trying to capture in words what Jesus has done for us, uh, he relates it back to that old temple system of sacrifice. He says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, these were all things that were sacrificed in the temple, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Now, we can look at that and think that's such a strange kind of ritual, it's a strange kind of symbol. And yet we do all kinds of things today, don't we, to deal with our guilt. Sometimes we can try and drown it. Sometimes we can try and shout it out and argue it away. We all have these rituals to deal with that guilt. The writer here says, you might be outwardly clean, but how much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts to lead, that lead to death so that we may serve the living God <coughs> these words are, are so important yes we need to face up to sin yes God has done everything he can to pay the price to open the way for us but that does not mean God wants us walking around sin conscious constantly 
He does not want us walking around feeling condemned and ashamed. He wants to cleanse our consciences. There's a, a new version at the moment of that film, Pinocchio, that's out. Remember that little character that sat on Pinocchio's shoulder? Anybody remember his name? Jiminy Cricket, a name that means conscience, basically. That's what I mean. That character that would speak to Pinocchio throughout his life, and we've all got one, kind of sits on our shoulder and accompanies us and, and speaks to us. God tells us here in his word, he doesn't just want to deal with our legal guilt, our outward cleanliness. He wants to deal with it on the inside and cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death. Jesus comes to save us from the shame of sin. He does not want us walking around battered and broken, but free, loved and loving in his name. Secondly, Jesus came to save us from the slavery of sin. Another story that I came across, a guy called uh, Tom Shanklin. Tom, interestingly, also grew up in church. Uh, he grew up in a, a Christian family. Uh, but for him, the challenge was not that sort of promiscuity culture that Adrian had known. Uh, for him, it was a drinking culture. But it led on to other things. Eventually, the alcohol wasn't enough. And he started to smoke marijuana. He became known as the person that you bought marijuana for because he was the most entertaining. It's amazing what we do, isn't it, to fit in. This deep need in us to belong and to be loved. and That can lead us to some quite dark places if it goes untethered and unhindered. And for Tom, it led him into a lifestyle of smoking marijuana. So much so that he said there was a season of his life he has very little memory of, about two and a half years, because he was constantly high. He was unable to work, and so they all but lost the farm uh, that he'd inherited from his mum and dad. They kept a kind of tiny corner of it as an orchard. And one day this guy comes to work for them. Uh, he was, they called him Angel because he was amazing at his job. He was what they call an apple knocker. And, uh, he was the best they'd ever seen. And this guy was a, a Christian. Uh, and Tom writes that this guy would talk about faith in such a natural way, such an open way. It wasn't this sort of high language, it was just very real. And sometimes if they weren't collecting enough apples, Tom would stop, and, uh, sorry, this guy Angel would stop and say, should we just pray for some apples today? Uh, and Tom would look at him and think, I'm the one who's high, what's going on? But sure enough, he'd, he'd see things and see God move in his life. And one day, uh, Tom offered Angel some marijuana. And he said to him, I, I don't need it. And something inside of Tom broke, and he realized, I, I need this. And, and what about me needs this? Uh, on his website, he's written a lot about his own journey and his own story. But these words, I was searching. The only problem was I was looking for happiness in the wrong place. There are all sorts of substitute happiness packages. It's a great phrase. Substitute happiness packages. Some come in a bottle or a pill or a joint. Some come in bank accounts or material goods. But the truth is only God satisfies. Only he can fill the void with his love through Jesus Christ. It's easy for us, isn't it, to see others with their struggles and battles and, and to stand apart from that and think, well, I, 
I'd never done that. I would never be there. It's easy to judge, isn't it? But so often when you hear the story, you realize they didn't get there on their own. There was something that was hurting, something that they needed. And Tom comes to realize that only God satisfies. Jesus once put it really plainly for us, that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So interesting, isn't it, that we start off doing these things because we think they're going to bring us happiness or freedom or whatever it is that we're looking for. But actually, it binds us to them. There's a, a phrase that I keep coming back to in the New Testament about the sin that so easily entangles. And it does, doesn't it? It weaves its way in. Suddenly, we find ourselves needing something or needing somewhere or someone. Uh, and it, it, it creeps up on us. I mean, nobody wakes up one day and plans to lose their farm through smoking pot. Nobody sets out to do that. Nobody sets out to become an addict. But somehow, it weaves its way in, and we need it at a really unhealthy level. Whereas Tom would tell us, only God satisfies he wants to save us from the slavery to sin. I love these words that Paul wrote to Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. It's just the beginning. Uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do his will. There's a difference, isn't there, between trying to get ourselves out of something by just creating more rules and more structure and more controls and being changed from the inside out. And Paul writes here so passionately, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no. It's not the kind of the rule. It's not the kind of the threat of God. It's not just the fear. It's the grace of God. And when I realize the price that's been paid for me, when I realize the love that's been shown me, when I realize what it costs to forgive me, that changes me in a way that no external circumstances or structure ever can. The grace of God to satisfy us. Jesus saves us from the shame of sin. He saves us from the slavery of sin. And then finally, the separation of sin. It's interesting, isn't it, if we go back to where we started this morning, to Joseph's story. When he found out what he thought was sin on Mary's behalf, what he presumed was sin, as we all would have done, his plan was to deal with it quietly. How often is that our strategy? God, deal with this, but deal with it quietly. We hide things, don't we? We hide things from each other. It's fascinating if you read the first chapter of Genesis. One of the first things that happen as humanity begin to reject God's plan and choose their own way. One of the first things they do is to hide. First of all, to hide from God. And then they begin to cover up and hide from each other as well. And that's the instinct, isn't it? Is to cover up and, and hide. As if the cover of darkness will somehow heal something. 
the reality is that for those of us who understand that God is with us, in order to sin, I have to kind of deliberately forget that for a while. I have to turn my attention, my, my focus away. Otherwise, there's no way you would do it. And the longer that goes on, the harder the heart gets. The more enslaved, the more entangled we become. We hide from each other, and it, it separates us from the love of God. I love these words from Psalm 69. If you've ever been flicking through the Bible and found yourself on any page, I found myself in this verse so many times. Oh God, you know my stupidity. Amen. And the things of which I am guilty are not hidden from you. Stupid to think that you don't know. Stupid to think that you don't see. Oh God, you know. And yet our stupidity is not the only truth about us. This is a cry right from David's heart. The things of which I'm guilty of are not hidden. And he goes on to pray this later in the psalm. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. If you ever want to know how God forgives you, why he keeps on forgiving you, the answer is right here, the goodness of his love. It's not because of how well you pray or how often you pray or the things that we try and put in place. It's because of his great love towards us. The goodness of his love in your great mercy. And then this desire from David, do not hide your face from your servant. He's recognized in his stupidity. He's, he's had to turn away and he feels this sense of separation. God, don't cast me away. Don't not look at me. It captures somehow, doesn't it, the fear of rejection. The fear that we're not enough. The fear that if people knew, people knew it all, they wouldn't want to be our friends, wouldn't want us in our lives. We wouldn't be where we were, we wouldn't have what we had if people knew, if people knew, if people knew. Don't hide your face from me, God. Don't, don't reject me. I've, I've tried to open my heart fully to you. Am I still in your presence? Am I still loved by you? Am I still wanted for you? Really interesting, this, this phrase, do not hide your face, seems to echo throughout the scriptures, the great promise that is given to the people of Israel through a prayer of blessing is that the Lord's face might shine upon them. They might know God's face. Isn't that incredible? To know God well enough, to know the look on his face. That was the great hunger. Towards the end of Jesus' life, everything that he'd been trying to prepare the disciples for happens. His body is broken. His arms are stretched out wide, and he's crucified on the cross. His, his blood flows out. And as he is there, lifted up from the earth, suspended somehow between heaven and earth, with arms stretched out to the east and the west, he cries out on behalf of all of us, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this sense of, of Jesus crying out on our behalf, offered up like a sacrifice 
in our place, crying out for us, crying for our forgiveness. And then we're told that as Jesus dies, there's these, a number of circumstances. There's the earth beneath the cross shakes. There's an earthquake that interestingly is recorded by other parts of the world. There's also an eclipse in the middle of the afternoon, which was also recorded in other parts of the world. And many people have written about this moment of darkness covering the world, unexpected darkness, this sense of gloom. It must have been something terrifying because the soldier who was just responsible for seeing Jesus crucified says, surely this was the Son of God. What have we done? Suddenly it's, it's clear. Suddenly they, they see it. But there's this moment of darkness as physically the sun itself is covered, darkness covers the earth, and as God himself, the perfect one who cannot look upon sin has to turn his face away from his one and only son. And then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus experiences there in the horror of being sacrificed in our place, that separation from God. That place that sin leads us to. That place that if we choose to live life without God, he will allow us to live life without God. And then comes the reality that Jesus is forsaken in our place so that we don't have to be. So that if we ask Jesus to include within his death our shame, our guilt, our stupidity, our wrongdoing, then the God who turned his face away from Jesus can turn his face towards us. The Jesus who died with arms stretched out wide could say to us, I've taken your sin away as far as the east is from the west. I've removed your transgression from you. No wonder they called him Savior. And my question for each and every one of us today is can you call him Savior? Do you know what it means to call Jesus Savior? The one who deals with our shame. The one who deals with our slavery. The one who deals with our, our separation, who brings us near, who brings us close. Because you can know that today. Because Jesus has come, there is a way to be saved. So let's just pray together for a moment today.